Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, welcome back to Medicus. This is Emily Haken. And I'm Rasa. Today, we are so excited to be speaking with Dr. John Bookbar. Dr. John Bookbar is a neurosurgeon and vice chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital, a hospital in New York that is featured in a Netflix docuseries called Lenox Hill, which came out in June 2020. He has an extensive list of awards, lectures, papers, and research accomplishments. Currently, he is a co-principal investigator of ongoing clinical trials testing a new delivery method of targeted drug treatment for common types of brain cancer. So, Dr. Bookbar, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So, can you please tell our listeners a little more about yourself? Well, I'm a Gemini and an identical twin. Wow. So, that's kind of cool. Uh, my identical twin brother, Daniel, is not a doctor, never wanted to be. And so it does raise the issue of nature versus nurture, because I always wanted to be a doctor and he always wanted to be a lawyer. So go figure. So I have four children, happily married for 22 years, and I went to uh, high school here in New York. I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, came back to New York, where I went to med school in Brooklyn. And then went back to the University of Pennsylvania to do my residency in neurosurgery and then came back to New York. First started at Cornell as an attending in neurosurgery before I got recruited over to the behemoth we call Northwell Health here in New York uh, that has Lenox Hill Hospital, uh, where I'm a vice chair and professor of neurosurgery at the Zucker School of Medicine. Wow, awesome. It sounds like you've been at different places throughout your career and so exciting for you to be back in New York. That's awesome. So we know that you come from a long line of physicians. And so we're curious if you knew that you always wanted to pursue medicine and if you ever explored other career options along the way. Nope. Like I said, I always wanted to be a doctor. I don't know why or how, but from the youngest of ages, there was never a time where I was like, oh, I want to be a politician or a policeman. You know, my dad was an ophthalmologist, my grandfather was an ophthalmologist, and my great-grandfather was an ophthalmologist. So medicine was always in our blood. I have uh, three other siblings. My older brother's an internist at Mount Sinai here in New York, and my sister is secretary of the state of Pennsylvania. So we have two doctors and two lawyers. So, you know, I don't know why this happens, uh, why some people, you know, just are drawn to one field or another. But for me, it was medicine always. That's awesome. And so since so many of your relatives are ophthalmologists, I'm wondering, were you ever pressured to pursue ophthalmology? It's a very good question. And the answer, no. But I'll never forget, I was a third-year medical student. And I sat down with my parents at our kitchen table to tell them I was going to go into neurosurgery. And, you know, my dad was a community ophthalmologist on the South Shore of Long Island. And, you know, he, he was a big part of our community. And, you know, neurosurgeons in, the, in that time were like crazy people. You know, they never were home. They were these egomaniacs. And when I told my parents, my dad looked at me and said, are you nuts? You know, you, you're just not, you know, book bars don't do neurosurgery. 
<laughs> so they do ophthalmology. They do ophthalmology. <laughs> but, you know, once he saw my life and uh, even my quality of life as a resident, I mean, it, we had a, a terrible quality of life for a couple of years as a resident. But, you know, one thing I will teach you guys is the sooner you're able to multitask and be disciplined with your hours and your time and your family time, it's very, very important. It's like any other skill set. Really teach yourself how to be efficient as a medical student. As you guys know, as medical students at Loyola, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's time to play hard also. And you got to get good at that now because it's going to help you in the future. That's really valuable advice. And just the idea to start building that foundation now because it will be so helpful down the line. There's a lot of peer pressure now for me even. You know, David Langer will say, John, come on, let's go out for a beer after work. I'm like, David, I got to go home. I got to see the kids. So, um, wow. and there's not just pressure to get beer, you know, or a, a deep dish pizza in Chicago, but there's, <laughs> there's pressure to do more work in the hospital. Hey, John, could you go and round on this patient? Hey, do you mind reading these films? And the answer is it's okay to say no, because you're only, mm-hmm. you know, you're only as productive as the worst thing that's going on in your private life, whether it's your own unhappiness or your child's unhappiness or your spouse's unhappiness. So you got to pay attention. Right. Wow. That's all really great advice to keep in mind. So we grew up in the same town and attended the same high school, even called Hewlett High School, as well as participated in the same pre-med summer program for college students in our area that is now through Northwell Hofstra Zucker School of Medicine. So I'm so appreciative that we're talking today, given these awesome connections. Um, So I'm just curious to hear about how your upbringing and, you know, growing up in the same area that I did affected you either personally and or professionally. Well, first of all, that's so cool. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, by the way, that's what's great about these things and these podcasts is you never make these connections. And even that's what's been great about our Netflix show and our Brain Tunes summer internship program. I mean, I've met just great people like you guys who, you know, the cycle of life, the arc is closed about, so, you know, in so many ways. So that's a really great connection we have. And uh, I think um, New York's a great place, but wherever you grow up, you're, you're going to come with this foundation of schooling, whether you went to a private school or a public school or you're in inner city or rural, you know, it comes down to who your mentors and models are. And for me, I can vividly remember the teachers in high school and particularly in college that really I credit with altering the course of my interests. And I always say this, you like what you're good at and you're good at what you like. There are high school teachers or people that were instrumental in helping you get through some of the tough times in high school, whether it's teachers or friends or parents. And um, those are important lessons to take with you and coping strategies that you develop from a very young age. I mean, we've all been around, uh, you know, mean girls and other things in high school that, that you develop coping strategies for. And by the way, those coping strategies you take with you out of high school, you take them through college and then through residency and into real life. And so don't minimize all those experiences. And uh, just make sure you surround yourself with people that you trust and people that are looking for you to succeed and not fail. And one of the things that we emphasize in the Netflix show, where David Langer and I really spent a lot of time making sure that we surround ourselves with people who are like-minded, with the right culture, who are supportive of each other. Because when the shit hits the fan, 
uh, you don't want someone stabbing you in the back. That's for sure. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. My mom has always kind of raised me with the idea that you are who your friends are. And so I think I, when I was little, was very selective about the people that I chose to surround myself with, which I credit, you know, the person that I've become to, again, learning from the people that I surrounded myself with. So since a lot of our listeners are pre-med and medical students, could you just briefly touch on the logistics of a career in neurosurgery regarding, you know, what you should be doing in medical school, uh, the length of residency, potential fellowships, et cetera? So really for a success in neurosurgery, first of all, you're beginning a lifetime of learning, right? So your skill set that you most want to develop is uh, the ability to learn and to continue to study. Because I study, in fact, my wife always makes fun of me and says, you know, didn't you know that material already? And the truth is, yes, but I keep pounding particularly neuroanatomy into my brain. And we're learning basic science and physiology as it changes all the time. So Really, as a medical student, your job is to develop a skill set of studying and learning. That's your, your first job is how do you succeed? Because ultimately, you need to, if you're interested in a, in a career in neurosurgery, you need to be competitive in your class and really do well in medical school. There's no, and I don't care what medical school, you don't have to go to Harvard to get a residency. You can be a DO and get a residency. You can be in, uh, you know, overseas, you know, in medical school. I don't care where you go. But if you show that you actually do well in medical school, it puts you in a different breed. So actually, mm-hmm. but going back to what I said about being efficient, being organized, being diligent, allows you to really get the fundamentals to succeed in medical school. You don't have to graduate number one in your class, but you don't want to be in the bottom quartile necessarily if you're applying for neurosurgery. And of course, getting that foundation of knowledge and study habit will allow you to do well on the boards, which unfortunately still plays a role. Although I think they're moving to pass-fail. Is that correct? Sure. Trying. Right. So, <laughs> TBD. Right. I do believe that one of the things for neurosurgery that is important is showing an interest in research. And although it's very hard to do what I just told you, where you're studying and doing well and doing some research, even if a little bit of interest or a little bit of involvement is important. So, find someone who you can shadow, even if it means going to their lab meeting once a month, even if it's peripherally being involved or shadowing them in the OR, you need to be able to talk about stuff when you're sitting down for an interview. Not everybody needs to take a gap year to show that interest in research. But if you think there's a weakness, sometimes it's a good idea to take a gap year and do a dedicated, for example, my student, Josh Katz, who runs our brain turn program, took a year off after WashU in St. Louis. He's been working with me. He just found out he got into Hofstra's Zucker School of Medicine here in Long Island. And not because of me, Although I am uh, in the medical school, he's, I think he's going to have a whole host of offers. But, you know, those are really fundamentals. You know, obviously, four years of college, four years of medical school, maybe a gap year along the way, and then uh, seven years of residency with or without an extra mm-hmm. year of fellowship. That's what it takes to be under the lights, you know, playing in your own stadium. Yeah. So you definitely want to make sure, I think, that that is something that you want to pursue and not just kind of think like, oh, this sounds cool. Let me go do that because clearly it's a lifelong dedication. Speaking of research, you spearheaded a number of clinical trials and developed the Brain Tumor Biotech Center at the Feinstein Institute to expedite the process of bringing drugs or devices from the bench to the bedside. Have you always been interested in research? And have you ever thought about pursuing a PhD or a dual degree? 
You know, it's a very good question. I fortunately, I won an award as a uh, Penn resident called the Ruth Christine NRSA Award. So they paid me to basically do two years of research uh, during my residency. You know, so I could have, you know, just gotten a PhD at that time. But I felt that I do believe that anybody who's interested, particularly in a field like cancer, would benefit from doing dedicated research during your residency. You don't have to do a PhD, but I wouldn't just go do like a clinical fellowship in like joint arthroscopy, for example. Now, if you want to be a private practice, you know, orthopedic surgeon, that may be good for you. But if you really want to be a impactful cancer researcher, you got to do basic science research during your residency. And I don't, it doesn't matter if you're a neurosurgeon or a medical oncologist, you got to do basic science research during your residency, in my opinion. It's too important to understand the biological basis of disease. Um, yeah, as a MD-PhD candidate, I definitely agree with your opinion. I think basic science is where it's at. And by the way, can I just reemphasize that is, you know, people think that, you know, MD-PhD is focused on your own, you know, thesis and stuff like that. But there are so many opportunities that will present itself in biotech for an MD-PhD. People don't realize, and I didn't realize this, the whole biotech field is a massive opportunity for people to be involved in doctors in particular. So you're going to have opportunities to be involved in the creation of intellectual property, uh, joining companies, being on scientific advisory boards, fundamentally bringing new technology devices and delivery to human disease. So the vantage point that an MD-PhD gets, and I feel like I got that without a PhD, and many people can get that without a PhD. But remember, it's not just, you don't waste a PhD if you become just a doctor or a clinician. There's so many opportunities to use that foundation of knowledge. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. So we were curious, you know, as the show mentioned, why did you leave your position at Cornell to come to London? Well, it's a great question. By the way, people thought I was nuts to leave Cornell, right? Here I'm leaving an Ivy League institution to go to Northwell Health, which had just been given its medical school. They had just bought Lemmings Hill Hospital. You know, why would I leave? I was just promoted. I was probably the fastest professor promoted at Cornell. You're right. Why would I leave, right? And the truth is, I was happy. I was not unhappy. But I'll never forget this because I do brain tumor surgery, right? And I'll never forget, I left Penn to go to Cornell because I wanted to be a brain tumor specialist. And I'll never forget the people at Penn saying, how are you going to compete with the people across the street at Sloan Kettering? Because it's a cancer hospital. And, you know, people just assume. Yeah. And so I went to Cornell and within 10 years, I had built the biggest, one of the biggest brain tumor practices, if not the biggest in New York City. And then I was going to leave and go to Lenox. And I turned to my wife, who, like you guys, was from the north side of Chicago. And she said it very succinctly. She said, John, this is New York. When New Yorkers find out that their doctor is at Lenox Hill Hospital, they're going to go to Lenox Hill Hospital. So I felt that without risk, there's you know no risk, no reward. So here was an opportunity where I didn't really have to move my kids out of school. And I was being given the reins to basically start my, it's like going from an old stodgy bank to your own hedge fund. That with a guy <laughs> that I knew that I trained with, David Langer, we had the opportunity to create something truly unique without any legacy at a great hospital on Park Avenue with a great health system behind us a brand new medical school. Why wouldn't I take that job? And yet, when I took the job, everyone thought I was crazy. John, are you going into private <laughs> practice? Are you leaving academia? I said, no, mm -hmm. I'm going to do something that's 
really is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And by the way, I got more grants. I published 16 papers last year. I have more residents, more fellow. I got bigger grant funding. I got to hire everyone who I liked. I didn't have to be surrounded by anyone I disliked. <laughs> and we had a health system that was looking for us to succeed no matter what. Right. So we went from nothing to a thousand craniotomies at a hospital that had never done cranial neurosurgery. And we're not just talking small craniotomies. We were talking the most complex of neurosurgery. And I'm still very, very close with the people at Cornell, but that's why I left. And by the way, my phone has never stopped ringing for six years for people asking to leave their Ivy League institutions and come join us at Lennox. That's fantastic. I'd say this, you know, about people you're with now in medical school, people you do your residency with, your internship, they will be your friends for life. And if you're good now, they'll be good to you later. David Langer and I bumped into each other at a bar in New York City. I've not seen each other for a couple of years. He said, I said, David, what are you up to? He goes, I just come to Lenox Hill. He turned to me, he goes, would you consider coming to Lenox Hill and join me? <laughs> I said, absolutely not. With a couple months of reconnecting, I said, wait, it's me and Langer. How could we not do this? And, and the rest is history. Best decision I ever made. That is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And let me, let me just also tell you one other thing about, you know, cocktail party chat. This is a true story. But I had an opportunity when I was looking at the job to go to Lenox Hill. My friend, who I, I also trained with at Penn, is at is vice chair of neurosurgery at NYU. And I'm good friends with the chair there. And there was an opportunity for me to go to NYU. And when I told him I was not going to go to NYU, I was going to take this opportunity in Lenox and Northwell. And the unnamed person said, John, what do you want to be, a professor of neurosurgery at Hofstra? And I turned to him and I said, mm-hmm. I don't really care where I'm. That's not really what's important. The thing that's important is, are you in an institution where you're being supported, where you're surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals, where you're intellectually satisfied, where you're given the resources to, to really make move the needle in whatever field you want? That, to me, is important. You don't get swept away with being at the bright ivy tower. There are a lot of crummy doctors hiding underneath the ivy flags. Yeah, thank you so much. So now we're going to jump into some show-specific questions regarding Lennox Hill. For those who haven't seen the docuseries before, could you please give us um, a brief synopsis of Lennox Hill? Lennox Hill is just real life. You know, we weren't paid a cent to do the show. David Langer got introduced to the production company, which is an Israeli husband and wife team who are ex-fellow of his who had come from Israel where they had done a similar show. And basically, they wanted to mic us for 18 months and see what life was like inside the hospitals. And obviously, with neurosurgery and OBGYN and the ER, which are really the three storylines, there tends to be some excitement in the clinical aspect of those specialties. But, you know, What makes the show really fascinating for me was how beautifully they showed the non-medical sides of our lives and how they wove the storylines of, you know, my wife or my children or my lab work or the time I'm doing a weight craniotomy. They just seamlessly showed what real life is like. There's not sex in the dirty utility room like there is in Grey's Anatomy and there's not this, that, and the other thing. This is just real life medicine. We all have heartbreak have emotions, we laugh, cry, we struggle, even at the best of institutions. So 
that's what's real about the show. And frankly, having been a fan of Grey's Anatomy and, and watched everything from New York Med to Hopkins MD, this, there's nothing like this show, honestly. I've never seen anything like it. It's very real. It's very down to earth, beautifully done. New York is its own character in the show, which is just incredibly nostalgic. So it's just, it was incredibly uh, humbling to be a part of it. That's awesome. And I completely agree that if I like had to summarize in like one sentence what the show is about, I would say like a very realistic depiction of medicine. I remember after the first episode of the show that I watched, I just could not believe like how realistic it was. <laughs> and like, obviously not being a doctor yet, but being a medical student, like I've seen a lot and I've also seen other medical TV shows and this show was unlike all the others in how realistic it was, both in the medicine that was being shown and obviously how real and accurate it was, unlike in some other shows, but also like just how candid it was. And like you said, your emotions, your true candid emotions were shown and your conversations with your colleagues and patients. And you could just tell none of it was forced and none of it was occurring because it was being filmed. It was a real life depiction of medicine. And I absolutely love that. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, we're neurosurgeons. First of all, we think we were good enough. We knew we were good enough to be filmed, right? We weren't going to like screw up. And, you know, you have to have, <laughs> you have to have some, you know, self-confidence. But we also knew that we had a product that we wanted to show the world that we thought was worth sending the message. And by the way, the message has gone all the way to the higher ups of medical education, neurosurgical organization. Washington, D.C., how we conduct ourselves, how we pay each other, how we work as a unit, not get paid as an individual. I mean, real substantial changes in even fee-for-service models. We've had content, you know, from everything from Washington, D.C. politicians to elementary school teachers reaching out to us about how we conduct ourselves, how we handle stress, how we achieve peak performance, how we support each other. Uh, There's a lot of things that doctors don't talk about. You guys are probably getting an education that's better than mine when it comes to stress management and mindfulness, burnout. We didn't get taught any of that, but you can get that taught 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And still, you're still going to have to deal with that in the field when you're out. And that's not easy. So we wanted to show how we handle it. You know, there's a whole host of stresses that they surely don't talk about in medical school. Totally. And so there was actually a question that we were planning on asking you a bit later in the interview, but I think now would be like the perfect time to jump into this. So going off what you're saying about, you know, the stress that we have to deal with in medical school and um, in the future as doctors and how you think that we're hopefully being better trained than you were in that arena. I think Ross and I like would definitely agree that we are hopefully being better trained in the regard of you know, preparing for the emotional rigors of being a physician in that our medical school actually offers an elective course entirely about transcendental meditation. That is a whole semester long. And I took this course my first semester of medical school and was just shocked upon hearing that this was an option for a course. Like I was expecting, you know, all the science courses, anatomy, everything I would have to take. But I was being given the option of taking a class for credit on meditation. Well, you know, shame on them for making it an option. I was on a call with a company called Arena Labs this morning. They're basically a company that came out of the Navy SEALs and basically teaching peak performance and how to handle stress. This is mandatory training. Everything you do in life requires muscle memory. And especially if you become a surgeon or even as a parent, 
you know, everything you do requires repetitive muscle memory if you want to achieve peak performance. If you don't want to achieve peak performance, that's fine too, but you're never going to achieve peak performance. You're going to be flat on the curve of performance. So one of the things you can do is, do you guys know what part of the brain is involved in anxiety and depression? The amygdala. The amygdala, correct. So if you focus all of your attention on the amygdala, you'll live a happy life. Now, if you cannot get your amygdala to stay cold, you're going to be screwed. And so (laughs) you don't have to be a Buddha practitioner or a yogi. You and I who have busy lives, four kids, a wife, full-time job, you know, what I call the full catastrophe. My job is to make my amygdala cold. And we do that Mm -hmm. with mindfulness training. We do it with meditative exercises. We do it with mental representations, whatever it is. But you guys have to start learning that. So I applaud you for getting that class in early. Now the the hard part is you need to develop a practice where you maintain it and develop the muscle memory. In this case, the muscle that you're using is not a muscle. It's the amygdala and how to keep that Mm -hmm. calm for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's great advice. And I love seeing in the show about how you incorporated mindfulness into your work as a neurosurgeon and also how you made it a point that everyone in your team as well, once in the OR, engage in mindfulness. So I'm wondering if you could speak to how mindfulness and how you actually term it grit flowness benefits you and your team's work. First of all, the term grit flowness is just a ridiculous term, but it's the only way I can remember sort of three stress reducing techniques that I need to succeed. The term grit, obviously, which is a book from by Angela Duckworth, really reminds me of this muscle memory idea where you have to have deliberate practice. You have to be constantly mentored and getting the feedback to develop peak performance. And, you know, you got to do the time and the repetitive practicing. Everyone is, has some element of grit, particularly those of us who are going to medical school. But grit doesn't alone determine peak performance. It's actually effort. So you can have an innate skill, but unless you have effort, you're never going to reach uh, peak performance. And that requires mentorship and feedback. And obviously, flow is the ideal state that we all want to be in. And that's really where it's just beautiful. And you and I have all been in flow, whether it's singing a song in the shower or running a marathon or being a concert uh, pianist, when you're really in this thoughtful, blissful moment where nothing else around you really matters. And that's just, a, as a surgeon in particular, that's a beautiful state. And mindfulness is a way for us all to get back out of trouble. When the aneurysm ruptures or, you know, my daughter had a fit yesterday and she wanted to cut her hair, you know, uh, and she's a sophomore and she's like, I want to cut my hair. You know, how do I maintain a sense of calm that's going to help us all get through that? And we channeled that in the operating room where I felt that do this performance checklist like a pilot, but no one's really checking in on us. And I felt it was mm-hmm. important to check in on myself at that moment, making sure I was steady and ready. And of course, uh, the people that were flying the plane with me, which are co-pilots and circulating nurses and anesthesiologists and uh, scrub techs. So it's actually a great moment. Everyone loves it, embraces it. We smile and laugh sometimes. And everyone has their own little spin on it. My resident who just finished his rotation with us, David Bond, yesterday did his mindful moment at and we were just laughing because of some of the things he was saying. And a little laughter before you're starting a serious case helps cool your amygdala. That's awesome. 
so inspiring to hear how you view meditation and mindfulness as being so crucial to your work. Crucial. So actually going off your discussion of like your team and how you all gather, I'm wondering about how you view the role of teamwork and collaboration in serving your patients. Well, like I've said before, teamwork is everything. One of the reasons we've been successful is we've created a team like any successful organization, whether it's you know Manchester United or the Chicago Bulls in the late 90s. They developed an organization that really had a culture of excellence. And I would say selflessness. And we really rely on each other. We believe in each other. We understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, and we try not to compete with each other. Now, that is not always the easiest thing to do. And as David Langer has been known to say, it's a skill set that requires training, and we train each other. It's hard to get used to someone else getting attention or you know, another case that you wish you were doing. And it takes practice, and they don't teach you this in medical school. So surround yourself with like-minded people who really value your skill set. If you find yourself in a position where you really think that there's negativity, you know, no one likes bad energy in the room and everyone knows exactly what I mean when I say that. And life is too short and trust me, you'll be unhappy. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's all about finding people that you work well with and engaging everyone and making sure to give credit where it's due as well, because it is a, a team effort providing patient care. So for me, of course, as someone who's very interested in research, I thought it was super cool that you have a very successful clinical trial that you are running. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that, kind of what led you to pursue this project and what have been some challenges? Well, look, I think if you can do research while you're a practicing physician, it's one of the most, if not the most gratifying experiences of your life. And particularly if it's an idea that you come up with that you put into clinical trial and you're testing humans. I mean, it, it honestly is so satisfying. So just being able to do that. Now, if you want to do that, you have to get started early in your career. Don't think you're going to be mid-career and be able to start a clinical trial. It's never going to happen. So right out of my residency, even during my residency, I was starting to work on research, getting grants, and starting to develop ideas of testing it in humans. I have always um, been frustrated, even when I was at Penn, uh, looking at my glioblastoma basic science work. I was studying EGFR signaling in glioma stem cells and working with small molecules. And I quickly learned that we had these great small molecules that were blocking EGFR signaling. And even the small molecules weren't getting into the brain. And then that was counterintuitive because they're small molecules, right? But 98% of small molecules don't even penetrate the blood-brain barriers. So I kind of got fixated on figuring out how to overcome the blood-brain barrier. And actually, one of my partners at Cornell was a guy named Pierre Gauvin, and he was doing intraarterial drug delivery of an alkylating agent into kids with retinoblastoma in the eye. And I was like, wait. And he took a disease that used to require inoculation of the eyeball, removing an eyeball in mm -hmm. a two-year-old, and he was saving the eye by giving intraarterial delivery of an alkylating agent. And it really got me thinking that we could extrapolate that technical advantage and with some new drugs that were coming down the pipeline, maybe use that in glioblastoma. So that's sort of how my, my thinking was created. And I was very close with a old, you know, one of my co-residents at Penn was Howard Rena, who was with me at Cornell, and he's an endovascular neurosurgeon. So I kept hearing about how technology was advancing very quickly in the endovascular field. 
And so just putting two and two together, I said, well, why don't we start looking at this in glioblastoma? Why don't we start breaking down the blood brain barrier and giving some of our novel agents? I, and my 12 o'clock call today, believe it or not, was on the biostatistics of a upfront clinical trial using intraarterial bevacizumab or Avastin after blood brain barrier disruption. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, our overall survival data is off the charts good. Wow. That's so fantastic. to me, it's taken, it's taken 10 years to finish that trial or about eight years. So, you know, look, our job, we're not on this planet for that long. And we're surely not in mm-hmm. medicine for that long. And you want to do something impactful, start early. Don't be afraid to pivot when you have to mm-hmm. and try. And don't be, look, people are going to say no to you throughout your whole career. When someone says no to you, just smile and say, ah, I, I smell an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's so awesome. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think especially not being afraid to pivot. Sometimes people, I think, get stuck on like an idea. Yes, this is absolutely going to work. And I think if you see things aren't working, you need to amend your plan and move forward, press on. So I was wondering, obviously, you deal with very, very sick patients, especially when it comes to this clinical trial. And not everyone is, hey, like your whole glioblastoma disappeared type of story. So I was wondering if you find it more difficult dealing with poor patient outcomes while knowing that you were being filmed. You know, I got to tell you, some of it's my personality. Some of it is just the duration of filming. Some of it is the kudos of the production company. And some of it is just having done this with my very dear friend, David Langer, is frankly, I didn't didn't even remember being filmed half the time. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the way they film, they're in like a different room sometimes and they're angling you, mm-hmm. you know, and y- you put the mic on in the beginning of the day. I mean, I would, I would use the toilet and be like, oh shit, my mic is up. So <laughs> it's like, you know, bad news is bad news. And I don't care if I'm mic'd or not mic'd, it sucks. And giving bad news, whether you're mic'd or not, is still bad news. And it didn't matter to me that I was being filmed or not. It, who cares if, if I was being filmed? It was about the emotion of the family. You know, it takes practice giving bad news to patients and we develop strong relationships with our patients and, you know, bad news comes with the territory. But that moment of giving that finality of bad news is not a binary event. It should be a process that has occurred over some period of time, meaning that there is some understanding in the family that things are not going in the right direction. And I think that's an important thing to start talking about with a family before the finality of the end. Yeah, definitely. And I think one patient, Chris, who the show kind of follows throughout, it seems like you had these conversations with his family, definitely. And I found it really interesting, too, where um, at one point, his scan showed a mass that appeared to be a tumor, but you weren't like, exactly sure what it was. And so I was wondering what it was like going into the operating room and not knowing exactly what you'll find. And how do you prepare for cases like that? Well, like I always say, first of all, you always have to be prepared. And one of the things I always do, which is a great tactic, is you got to get in the habit of forming mental representations before you go into surgery or, or in any event. And the idea of a mental representation is, hey, what can I think into the future? What am I going to find? What am I going to do if I find this? And go through that motion. Michael Jordan used to say, I would see the ball going through the hoop before I even shot. And so... We don't always know what we're going to get, but again, the muscle memory takes over and you want to be in flow and, and there's no decisions in surgery. You're just going through the motions. You know, when you're cutting a carrot on a board, right? You're not thinking about cutting it. Maybe until, maybe when you put the carrot down on the 
cutting board, but you're not thinking about it. You're just doing it, right? And that's the way we proceed with surgery. Yeah. What you said too, right before was, you know, it kind of almost reminded me of chess players and then being able to visualize like your opponent's move and then the moves that you'll make next and kind of imagine the whole game right in front of you before you even make that first move. Absolutely. So I was thinking you do have to make decisions on the fly. So let's say, you know, you again, see some sort of tumor and the blood vessels, like maybe it's infiltrating funny or like you can't do something and you have to make decisions on the fly. What goes through your mind? And do you have some sort of algorithm? It's a good question. Do I have some sort of algorithm? The answer is yes. You're always thinking, what if? We have two eyeballs, but I always think of a third eye, the third eye being behind the tumor. What am I not seeing here? And Mm -hmm. to me, it's almost as if I asked my scrub techs, and my nurses for an instrument long before I need it, right? Because I'm always mm-hmm. thinking ahead. And I try to teach my resident, don't ask for the instrument when you need it. Ask for the instrument long ahead of when you're going to need it. And the mentality is, like you said, is a chess play, is thinking ahead, knowing what the downside risk of doing anything is. And obviously, we always start with complication avoidance. So the number one thing we do is complication avoidance. Mm-hmm. And whether it's an artery or a vein or an eloquent part of the brain, sounds like a poem. <laughs> That's our algorithm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So one other thing that I wanted to touch on with, again, the surgical aspect of it, something that the show depicts is you operating on an awake patient, which I thought was just I mean, that's wild, right? You see it in TV shows, but then you're kind of like, I don't think this happens in real life, but clearly it does. <laughs> And so, yeah, I was wondering if you act or do anything differently when you know the patient is awake during surgery and are most of your patients calm? I mean, I can't imagine, you know, having my brain operated on while I'm just sitting there staring off into space. Okay. So really, when a patient allows me to do an awake operation on them, it's an absolute privilege, right? I mean, you're asking them to be awake and to have potential pain and to hear the noises of surgery. So we take that very seriously and are incredibly grateful for that courage. It doesn't necessarily change our behavior, except we're much more aware if there's any pain or discomfort or anything like that. So, you know, having a patient allow you to do an awake operation, you just got to treat it as a privilege. And in general, for surgery, I always say the same thing. There's no dilly down. You're in, you're out, you hustle, you don't waste time. The patients are doing, you know, have allowed you to operate on the human brain, for God's sake, you know, get in, get out, and uh, don't dilly dally. So, Dr. Bookvar, in the show, it was clear how truly challenging your work as a neurosurgeon is. Can you please explain overall what keeps you going, what motivates you, like when you're job gets at its most difficult times, like how do you keep working and, you know, serving your patients so effectively? I mean, look, I lost my dad to cancer 10 years ago. And the doctor that treated us was Mm -hmm. a total asshole. And when I see patients just getting questions answered, you know, smartly giving them options, I may not be able to cure their disease. Heck, I may make the wrong decision, but The thing that keeps me going is the relationship I develop with them and the trust that they have in us. And, 
when I see a good outcome or nothing gives me actually greater happiness and pride than when I see a patient who's gotten what I consider to be bad advice and I've redirected them. I had a recent example of a patient with glioblastoma that was in a rural part of Florida, barely had, and they were going to drive to Shan's Cancer Center. I can't even know where that is in Tampa and do an experimental protocol or something like that. I said, look, you need intravenous avastin and you can get that in your hometown. The thanks that I've gotten over the last eight months of high quality life with the family, um, sparing them traveling four hours every week for an unnecessary treatment that has little to no utility, you know, those are the things that keep us going. And every time you make a subtle impact is really meaningful. And that to me is what keeps me going. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important, yeah, to have something that serves as a reminder, especially when your job gets overwhelming, to remind you why you do the things that you do. So we're in the middle of a pandemic still, but I was wondering what it was like for you to be working at the epicenter of a global pandemic. Oh my gosh. You know, people talk about burnout. This pandemic allowed us to be burnt in. Um, meaning that we all found total meaning again mm -hmm. in medicine, in what we do, why we do what we do, whether you're a neurosurgeon, OBGYN, internist, nephrologist, we were pulled together like never before. And our hospital bonded. I mean, we woke up every single day with immense purpose. We had fear, don't get me wrong. I mean, I was terrified. My kids were terrified. But we had purpose again. We had teamwork. We had motivation. We had a new disease that we were trying to understand, which was incredibly satisfying to try to learn something that you weren't taught in medical school. So it was incredible. And, you know, I got vaccinated last Friday. I'm sure you saw my TikTok. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to get vaccinated and having been through this and come out the other side without having gotten COVID, oh my gosh, it was like we were in tears when we were getting vaccinated. Wow. That's huge. And I think I also, like Ross and I have talked about this, we think it's wonderful that doctors are communicating on social media how they're getting vaccinated because I think it's so important for others to see that doctors are trusting the vaccine and being models for health and appreciating science. So yeah, thank you for sharing on TikTok like this very monumental event in your life. Totally. So we're going to start wrapping up our conversation now, which has been so, so informative and amazing. And to, I think, appease a question on many of our listeners' minds, can you let us know if we can expect a season two of Lennox Hill to come out at any time in the near future? Oh my God, I'm totally shocked <laughs> you asking that question. I've just not prepared for that question. Um, I think you will all be pleasantly excited about what is yet to come from Netflix. Fantastic. Love it. Yes, just just enough to keep us wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Bookvark. And everything that you've discussed, I think, is just such valuable advice at any stage of training. So I was wondering if you have any parting advice for medical students, perhaps for those specifically interested in neurosurgery, as well as advice that's more general. The biggest advice that I can give you, which I've sort of touched on, is remember what you're good at. Don't let anyone else tell you what you're good at. Remember what you like. Don't let anyone else tell you what you're supposed to like. 
and use those as guiding principles. Um, there's a lot of negativity in medicine. There's a lot of positivity. Don't be down when things don't go your way. There's a reason. There's a lot of serendipity that comes into your career choices. See if you can recognize those moments uh, when they happen. Take advantage of them, much like I took advantage of a random encounter with David Langer at a bar in New York. Just remember, no risk, no reward. I always have a saying, move without the ball, meaning that you don't need to have a scalpel in your hand to be doing something good and something important. There's a lot of downtime. Take advantage of that downtime, whether it's you know getting your studying done or spending time with your loved ones. Um, that all is about is going to help you become the doctor that you hope to be. And there's a lot of time outside the hospital being a doctor with your loved ones and your spouses and whatnot. So just keep learning now and keep developing that muscle memory and keep that amygdala quiet. Thank you so much. You've shared so many pearls of wisdom with us today. And we're so grateful to have talked to you. And I know personally, I'm so glad that we realized our very specific connections going back to our high school and the pre-med summer program that we both did, which, by the way, inspired the topic that I wrote about in my personal statement to medical school. So this means a lot to me. And I know that our listeners will learn a lot from our conversation and be eager to watch season two of Lennox Hill. So thank you so much again and cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you also. And please keep in touch. And anyone who wants to stay involved with us, we're always looking uh, for participants, whether it's with brain turns or in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Dr. Bukwar. It has been an absolute honor. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.